In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, I wonder about that. Move the furniture, light the candles. Find John's Gospel. So, we know it's Christmas coming, don't we, when they start the Christmas ads on the telly. Uh, do you like the Christmas ads? I don't know, I'm a bit... But... Um, have you seen the little one with the little bear and the shrunk jumper? It's a sweet story, isn't it? it there's, there's something kind of warm and Christmassy about it. There's, um, there's a little bit of a moral tale, isn't there, about, you know, fame is not good for you. And, of course, the little girl gets, gets the bear back at the end. Plus all that food, so much food. And then right at the very end... The narrator says, that's Christmas you can believe in. Now, isn't that sad? Do we believe in Christmas with a nice story, a cuddly bear, lots of nice food, and a little girl who gets, gets what she should have got all along? I just think it's terribly sad. And we've been thinking, we started this series last week called Incarnation, and we're thinking about what Christmas is really all about, I think. I hope that's what we're doing. I'm slightly, I'm slightly upset by the fact that the tree has displaced the cross. <laughs> anyway, so following Alan's tour de force last week um, in the first few verses of John 1, we've come to the last four verses of John's prologue to his gospel. Um, and I guess I'd better read it, hadn't I? So John 1, beginning at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So John's Gospel is very different, isn't it, to the other three synoptic Gospels. They tell the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. John sets his good news in a cosmic context, starting with creation and the eternal existence of Jesus Christ as the Word, the Logos, part of the Godhead from the beginning and instrumental in creation. This Gospel is designed not just to tell us the good news, but to bring us to faith in him. That's exactly what John says. Now, here in verse 14, John describes what C.S. Lewis... See, I can get C.S. Lewis in as well. C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle. The word became flesh. The message says flesh and blood. This implies a proper human with a functioning, ordinary body. The series is called Incarnation, isn't it? The bit, the carn bit, is the same as carnal. 
fleshly desires, carnal desires. It's about flesh and blood. Will, in his series on sexuality, emphasized that we are our bodies, the physical flesh and blood. We're not just a soul wrapped up in inconvenient, despised flesh. Our bodies are important. They're a temple. They are us. They always will be, even beyond the grave. This has implications we'll come to later. But for now, just take a moment to contemplate what this means. The God who created the universe and you and me came to live among us as one of us. Accepting limitations, but still fully God. Wow. Now that is a Christmas you can believe in. That is the wonder and miracle of Christmas. Dorothy Sayers, I never thought I'd quote from Dorothy Sayers in a sermon, but here it comes, observes that from the beginning of time until now, this is the only thing that has ever really happened. We may call this doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? So I hope you're excited about the incarnation. Wesley, in one of his hymns, describes the incarnation in this way. I love this. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. How do we understand it? So John may have been emphasizing this in order to counteract very early heresy, which declared that Jesus wasn't fully human. The human form was a kind of an illusion. This, this wasn't real. If he was the Godhead, he couldn't be a real human being. And that kind of played to the culture of Jesus' day, where um, Jews and Greeks thought that the, 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 the Godhead could not possibly become flesh. And actually, um, Muslims today can't get their heads around the idea that Jesus was God as well as man. And it's interesting, isn't it, that today people have far more trouble believing in the divinity of Jesus than in his humanity. You can talk about Jesus the man being a good teacher and a good man and, and being an example, but if you try to say that he's God, that really doesn't go down very well. So he became flesh and lived among us. The message translates it moving into the neighborhood. But the word actually has the sense of pitching his tent, tabernacled, if you like. And I think John was reminding his first readers of the tabernacle pitched by the children of Israel during their wanderings in the desert. This was the place where God lived. God dwelt in the tent amongst them. They, they they could see that he came with them because of the pillar of fire and the pillar of, of um, smoke, but actually they pitched the tent each time they stopped and God was there and they could meet with him. John reminds us then that he and the other disciples saw his glory firsthand. And of course they did at the transfiguration and after his resurrection. The incarnation was witnessed by many. We can identify today, I think, with the words, we have seen his glory. I thought of examples, we, we encounter God's glory in worship, in creation, in beautiful things. 
But John really did when Jesus was on earth and then later on the island of Patmos. Now, it occurred to me that there's something very powerful about going and living among the people that you want to reach with the gospel. In the early days of Christian ministry in China, missionaries lived in fortified compounds, dressed in their Western clothes, went out to the population with a Western version of Christianity, which had to be translated. And I guess that was true of other missionary societies as well. Then Hudson Taylor in the 19th century, when he set up CIM, he insisted that missionaries lived in the communities they were ministering to, dressed in local dress, they even grew along a long pigtail, and learned the language, and tried to minister in a, in a transcultural, cross-cultural way. We call this incarnational ministry and enculturation. That's a horrible word, isn't it? So when, when new missionaries go, they learn the language and they learn the culture. They learn how to live among the people that they're ministering to. That's hard, and it can be risky as well but it is following Jesus' example. And for us, if we want to reach people with the good news of Jesus, we need to be among people who don't know him. We need to make relationships. We need to learn the language, if you like, and the culture. I think that's particularly true if you work with young people today. Again, John reminds us in the second part of, of verse 14 of Jesus' origin as part of the Godhead his uniqueness and his character, which is the fullness of grace and truth. He returns to this in verses 17 and 18. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, because all of the Godhead is contained in him. And what's he like? Generous with his love, full of grace and completely reliable, full of the truth. And these are difficult concepts today, aren't they? Grace is all about completely undeserved love. Folk find it very difficult to accept something that they can't earn or don't deserve. I, I vividly remember um, with uh, Redland Education Centre in those days in a school, um, and we used an illustration of somebody who was in court um, and was going to be um, sentenced. And somebody stands up and says, no, no, I'll take, I'll take the blame. I'll accept the sentence, you can go free. And we were trying to teach them about the meaning of the cross. And most of the children said, that's not fair. You can't let that happen. If somebody's been convicted, they have to take the punishment. It's not fair for somebody else to come along and take the punishment. But that's what God's grace is all about. Nothing we can do can make God love us more or less than he does. And the incarnation is the pinnacle of grace, isn't it? The gift of God himself for us. I was going to, going to quote from Philippians 2, but actually I'm preaching on Philippians 2 on New Year's Day. So, I'm <laughs> And the concept of truth is hard to grasp today, isn't it? Asserting that something is absolutely true can get you into trouble. It may be your truth but you can't impose your truth on me. It may be truth in your sphere, but it's not truth in mine. And we have no absolute standards of truth now, so truth is what you want it to be. And isn't that getting the world into trouble? 
The word became, in verse 14, isn't about being made from scratch. It's not about creation. It's about becoming. The word incarnate wasn't created. We have already seen he was there from the beginning. But clearly his nature changed. I think it's a bit like the caterpillar becoming a butterfly, isn't it? All the essentials of the butterfly are there in the caterpillar, but they're changed around in the process of metamorphosis, and they're irreversible. The butterfly can't go back to being a caterpillar. Jesus returned to heaven bodily. The incarnation survived that return, and he remains at his Father's right hand in his resurrection body, interceding for us. So then we come to the end of verse 14, and then abruptly... John harks back to the Baptist and his testimony. Again, John emphasizes the Baptist points away from himself to Jesus. Again, a good model for our own witness. I wondered what happens when churches or individuals become more important than Jesus, when they point to themselves rather than to Jesus. I think there's been a, a recent example, hasn't there, of, of a church getting into trouble uh, because the church and it, it getting money and the, the, the kind of the, the function of the church has become more important than the gospel they're meant to be preaching. John was famous in his day, wasn't he? People flocked to hear him. It must have been so tempting to start a cult of his own. But he was always clear that he was just the herald, the forerunner. He was only there to point to Jesus. I wonder if it was a relief when Jesus showed up and had his messiahship confirmed by God's words at his baptism. But was there a tiny bit of disappointment or only satisfaction that his job was done? And then in verses 16 to 18, John turns his attention to the implications for the church, the community of faith, of what he's been describing. That is, the people who received him, who believed in his name and who have the right to become children of God. That's us, the community of faith. We've been at the receiving end of his generosity, one blessing after another. So what does the incarnation mean for us? Well, first it means salvation, doesn't it? It's the prerequisite for the accomplishment of God's salvation plan. Incarnation, death, resurrection. You can't have Easter without Christmas, and, of course, conversely, Christmas is just a nice story without Good Friday and Easter. God had to come himself and make the ultimate sacrifice to die on the cross in order for us to be forgiven and restored. And then it's a wonderful affirmation of our humanity, isn't it? God did not despise the virgin virgin's womb. When we say we're made in the image of God, we know that God was willing to come as a human to earth. He loves us so much with all our human failings. He was willing to leave the glory of heaven. Paul says, empty himself, being made in the form of a servant. And he was willing to die for us. Doesn't that make humanity special? And God in Jesus identifies with us. He suffered. He was tempted. He knows what it's like for us. He can empathize. No other world religion worships a God who shares his believers' struggles in this way. But he remains 
the supreme, powerful God of the universe. Come to me, says Jesus, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So he is one of us. He knows what it's like to be weary and burdened, but he is still the all-powerful God of creation. And the wonder of these truths leads us to worship and adoration. When the shepherds and the magi found the baby, they were overcome. They bowed down and worshipped. We've just spent the week showing people around the Christmas trail, and we finish up in the chapel with a nativity scene, and the shepherd and the magi may just tell us the story of why they went to the stable to see the baby. And they say, and we, we, just, we, we fell down and worshipped because we were so aware of what was going on. And there must have been something about what had happened to them and the baby and what they'd been told to expect and the angels' messages that made them worship. In a way, we've reduced the wonder of Christmas to a nice story and a consumer fest, haven't we? How can we regain the wonder and more importantly, help our children and our grandchildren to do it? So consider, this is the pinnacle of God's revelation. We, the people of God, got the basics through Moses and the law over those years before the incarnation. But now we have Jesus, the word made flesh, showing us what God is really like and providing through his death and resurrection a way back to relationship with God. The new covenant doesn't supersede the old one, it doesn't abolish it, it completes it. In a few minutes, we'll celebrate Jesus' sacrifice for us as we share bread and wine. We remember what God has done for us in Jesus. John reminds us that God has made himself known to fallen humanity through Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. Made him known is the verb from which we get the word exegesis, Exegesis is the explaining of the text that I've been trying to do. Jesus Christ is the exegesis of God, the exposition of his hidden reality. And John is saying that as we move on in his gospel, we're reading about the ministry of the one who is uniquely able to reveal God to us. So here ends John's prologue. Now the narrative begins.